You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hello, Constantines! In a minute, this episode is going to start very abruptly, and then remind you to go back and listen to part one. But before all that, I've got something very exciting for you. A survey! If you listen to many podcasts, you've probably heard this spiel before, and you've probably ignored it. This time, I'm asking you not to. Instead, please go over to surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave and answer a couple of questions about who you are and how you like the show and such. It'll really help me and Airwave understand who's listening, what you like and don't, where I can improve, and who might be good sponsors. There's even a place at the end to tell me anything you want. And unlike when you do that via the website, it probably won't get lost in a flood of spam emails calling themselves Margaret Atwood and advertising for psychic witch doctors. I don't know why those words all go in a row, but my inbox is brimming with them. All that, and as my way of saying thank you, if you complete the survey, you will be entered to win a $500 Amazon gift card. Again, that is surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave, or click the link in the episode notes. Piltdown Man isn't just the greatest scientific hoax of the 20th century, it is also, according to many, the greatest scientific mystery of the 20th century. And I'll be honest with you for a minute here and say that I, uh, well, I don't actually think the solution is especially mysterious. I think the whodunit is mostly pretty obvious, actually, with one big confusing asterisk that we will get to down the line. But over the last 70 years, Dozens of people have devoted years of their lives and thousands of pages to trying to work out the culprit. And even though I feel pretty confident I know who it is, I'd love to take you through the potential suspects. All, God, let's see here, 16 of them, Christ, all right. All 16 of them, in order, as Agatha Christie would have arranged things, of narrative convenience. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Blah, blah, blah. We don't have time. Go back and listen to part one or this episode won't make a lick of sense. If you want it to make extra sense, go back and listen to Link Missing parts one and two, too. But if you've already done all that, it is time to get down to business. Let's pretend that we don't know the answer and take a deep dive into the most infamous scientific whodunit of all time. This week's episode, The Earliest Englishman, Part 2. (music) 
Chronologically, the first person to be fingered was Charles Dawson, but narratively, we don't want to get to him until much later. Instead, we'll start with the second suspect chronologically, named in 1955 by Francis Vare, a supporter of Dawson who set about trying to unravel the mystery pretty explicitly to exonerate him. Instead, Vare casts aspersions on the unnamed and unknown road worker who, according to Dawson, originally found the first piece of skull. There's not much to recommend Vare's first theory, other than that this person, if he existed, was in the right place at the right time. Could some anonymous laborer have executed the whole plan, depositing the phony fossils in advance, queuing Dawson into their existence, and walking away? Seems pretty unlikely. What would have been the motive? And how did this shadowy figure know how to create the fakes and what fakes to create? Did he even exist in the first place? I feel like we can throw this one aside. And essentially, none of the many, many people who've gone gumshoeing since have paid Vare's theory any mind either. No, if some blue-collar hoaxer were responsible, it would have to be Venus Hargraves. He was first explicitly called out in 1972 by Guy von Esbrook, a professor at the University of Ghent in Belgium and, like a disturbing number of Piltdown investigators, a young Earth creationist. Von Esbrook's theory, predicated though it was on his religious beliefs and tainted by a thick and ever-present prejudice, is at least better reasoned than Vare's. Hargraves was one of just four people who were regularly at the dig site, and of them all, he was the one most getting his hands dirty. Consequently, he had arguably the clearest and most consistent opportunity of all the suspects, but means and motive are elusive. Could an elderly ditch digger have constructed such an elaborate forgery, and why might he have bothered? According to Von Esbrook, and he's not alone on this one, Hargraves wasn't working alone. He was instead something of a henchman, a double agent under the employ of someone else. There are a lot of possible shadowy figures behind the curtain associated with old Venus, two in particular, who we can move on to right now. The first is William Ruskin Butterfield, whom Von Esbrook thought was at fault. Butterfield was curator at the Hastings Museum, where Dawson was in charge of collecting new specimens and which he'd helped form years earlier. The two were supposedly chummy enough, except that in 1909, Dawson had discovered some fossils from an iguanodon, and rather than giving them over to Butterfield and the Hastings Museum, had instead spirited them off to the British Museum under Butterfield's nose. All appearances of friendship to the contrary, Von Esbrook theorized that Butterfield was totally and secretly outraged by this and obsessively formed a plan to ruin his colleague as revenge. Little bit of an overreaction, but okay, let's be generous and call that motive. Means is where the Butterfield case is strongest. As curator to a museum, he had access to exactly the sort of bones necessary to concoct the fakes, and nobody would have been the wiser. He was also expert enough both to produce the forgeries and to choose the right pieces, which was the most sophisticated and therefore most difficult part of the hoax to nail down. So the theory goes, 
Butterfield made the fakes and surreptitiously employed Venus Hargraves to plant them, all in what would be a quite bizarre effort to discredit Dawson over some dinosaur bones. According to Man Wearing Baines, who later took over as curator at Hastings, this sort of weird behavior was right in his former boss's wheelhouse. Not only that, but Butterfield was an established fraudster. Between 1892 and 1930, Butterfield had examined and detailed 542 rare birds, which, he said, had been trapped or hunted in Sussex. But they were all plants that Butterfield had brought in from overseas. Most intriguing of all, there is good reason to think that it was Butterfield who put Dawson on the scent of Piltdown in the first place. Or, at least, that is what he said. On multiple occasions, Butterfield took credit for directing Dawson to the Barkham Manor pit and recommending he sweep it for fossils. But this cuts against the argument for motive. When Butterfield made these claims, he was quite clearly angling for credit, hoping to be a part of the Piltdown Man find, which, so goes the theory, he knew to be a fake. And this also bumps against a recurring problem in the Piltdown mystery. William Ruskin Butterfield was just the first in a long line of suspects whose supposed goal was to get some unwitting dupe caught in the act. But if that were the plan, it had demonstrably failed. It took until well after all the parties were dead for the snare to snap. Revenge, the cliche goes, is a dish best served cold, but if Piltdown were revenge, it wasn't just cold, it was moldy and rotten. Every other detail of the plot was difficult. How to fake the remains, what remains to fake, how to get them onto the site, how to get people to find them. The only easy part would be the gotcha, and that's the one thing that the conspiracy inexplicably bumbled. It doesn't make sense. Not to mention that, in Butterfield's case, the motive is almost entirely contradicted. Yeah, one time Butterfield wrote about being a little miffed about the Iguanodon. But other than that, he retained a veneer of deep conviviality. Everyone, including Dawson and ostensibly even Butterfield, thought they were friends. It just doesn't make sense. But there's another guy Venus Hargraves could have been working for, Lewis Abbott. Abbott was a local jeweler in Sussex and another member of the Hastings Museum. He was even better acquainted with Dawson than Butterfield and on paper possessed the skills necessary for creating fake fossils more proficiently than either of them. He quite possibly crafted and sold some fake precious stones, perhaps even some phony archaeological finds, and according to everyone who looked at him, he was a bitter and spiteful jerk. Abbott figured himself a genius and couldn't work out why nobody else agreed, so he grew angrier and angrier. He was convinced, or at least said he was convinced, that he had made numerous critical scientific discoveries, none of which turned out. How any of that would add up to him enacting the Piltdown hoax, for which he never got any of the glory he craved, is left unsaid. I can't find any coherent case for his involvement. He was an inveterate liar and fortune seeker, but quite frankly, that doesn't appear to have made him much of a rarity in early 20th century Sussex, as we've already seen with Butterfield, and we'll continue to see on our way down the list. The next line of which reads, Samuel Allison Woodhead. Woodhead was the principal of the Uckfield Agricultural College, a friend of Dawson and a bit of a fossil hound. 
When Oakley, Wiener, and Clark announced their discovery that the Piltdown Man was a hoax, his son, Lionel Woodhead, wrote to Oakley to say that Dawson had first brought the fossils to his father for a second opinion, and that the two of them had together found the jaw a few days later, which is very much not the official explanation of events. Worse still, Lionel later wrote a letter to the archaeologist Glyn Daniel in which he said that Dawson had come around asking his father how you could artificially age bones, and that Woodhead had instructed him on the matter. Lionel was very much in the business of trying to push suspicion away from his dad, but his letters had the exact opposite effect. If what he said in them was true, Woodhead would have to at least had an inkling that the find was a hoax and said nothing about it, or maybe he'd even participated. Why would he have gone along? According to James Joyce's biographer, Peter Costello, it was because he was a creationist and hoped that the fraud would destroy Darwinism. And right there, we are back at the same problem as Butterfield. If Piltdown was meant to discredit anything or anyone, then why didn't it? Why would Woodhead have kept his mouth permanently shut? Worse still, why would this crusading creationist have teamed up with Dawson? And how did his son know about any of this? While it's possible that Samuel Woodhead was so naive as to not understand that he'd unintentionally abetted Dawson, the simpler explanation is that Lionel Woodhead just plain got the story wrong, intentionally or otherwise. So, Let's strike that from consideration, and with that, we are through the first tranche of suspects, who I call the Sussex Weirdos. The next set I'll call the Secondary Scientists, and we won't spend a lot of time on them. They are Frank Barlow, John Hewitt, and William Solis. Barlow was a staff member at the British Museum of Natural History, and he was the one responsible for making the plaster replicas of the skull, one of which Wiener eventually used to deduce the truth. He came under the shadow of suspicion by Caroline Grigson in a 1990 New Scientist article. Her argument rests entirely upon incredulity. Was it really plausible that Barlow spent all that time with the exhibits, making the casts, never noticing that there was anything strange about them? Couldn't be. He must have had a hand in their creation, says Grigson. He certainly did have the skulls, but how would he have gotten the fossils to Sussex? Grigson is unsure, but she does come up with a fairly novel motive. Money. After he made the casts, they were sold on consignment via a London fossil dealer for two guineas apiece. In total, Barlow might have profited enough over the course of the next few decades to buy himself a television. John Hewitt's supposed motive is even more ludicrous. He was a chemistry teacher who came across Dawson when the latter thought he discovered a natural gas deposit in Sussex. Hewitt disagreed, but eventually Dawson was vindicated. So, 15 years later, he, perhaps with the help of Woodhead, created the Piltdown forgeries as a practical joke, which he forgot to give a punchline. But the argument is even sillier than that. It draws in a lot of other suspects, forming an impenetrable web of conspiracy around this supposed joke which no one ever admitted to. It's stupid. Let's forget Hewitt. The final of the secondary scientists is the least secondary, William Johnson Solis. 
Solis was a preeminent British geologist and anthropologist who started out a student of Thomas Henry Huxley and ended up a professor at Oxford. Nobody had any reason to suspect his involvement with the Piltdown affair at all. He had nothing to do with and little to say about the fossils during his lifetime. But in 1978, an audio tape surfaced made by his assistant and eventual successor, J.A. Douglas, who by that time was also dead. On the tape, Douglas said that his old boss had been responsible, that he had created the forgeries in order to discredit his rival, Arthur Smith Woodward, not for any particular reason other than a vague professional antagonism. How he might have had access to the Barkham Manor site was left even less specific. Douglas's deathbed confession, curious as it was, doesn't really add up in any respect, so I think we can chuck it. Which means we are finally at the final clutch of six suspects, all but one of whom you're already at least a little familiar with, since four of them are already players in the story, and one of the others super famous. First up is Grafton Elliot Smith, one of the three superstars of British science we talked about in part one, who was first accused by Ronald Miller in a 1972 book entitled The Piltdown Men, plural. Miller's book was my entree into the deep and convoluted conspiracy-pocked world of this story, so it's a shame that I don't have much nice to say about it. Like me, Miller was neither a scientist nor a historian, but a playwright, responsible for a few potentially familiar screenplays, like the Clark Gable vehicles Never Let Me Go and Betrayed, as well as everybody's seventh favorite swashbuckling epic Scaramucci. Later on, he became a speechwriter for Margaret Thatcher, crafting a few of her most notable turns of phrase. She knighted him in 1979. You can guess how I feel about that. Miller's argument against Grafton Elliott Smith is a pretty thin thing to build a 500-page book around. As potential motives go, it is interesting just how perfectly discovery of Piltdown Man confirmed so many of Smith's pet theories, and he was practically first out of the gate supporting the find's authenticity. But Miller isn't even sure that that would be why he might have done it, instead eventually concluding that it could have been yet another practical joke pulled for no particular reason. That wanting explanation is going to come up at least twice more, by the way. The biggest thorn in the Smith theory, aside from the total absence of any evidence, is that while he was British, he wasn't English. He was born in New South Wales, and for most of the window of opportunity at Sussex, he was in Australia. Miller tries and fails to find workarounds for this impossible circumstance, but we shall not. Consider Grafton Elliott Smith exonerated. Several years after Miller's book, though, another writer decided to take a look at Grafton Elliott Smith. Ian Langham, a science historian, may have been interested precisely because Smith was a fellow Aussie, but it didn't take long for Langham to be dissuaded. To him, the trail led to one of the other prestigious scientists of the day, Arthur Keith. Langham, unfortunately, died in a plane crash before he could publish his theory, but his family asked Frank Spencer, professor of anthropology at Queens College, to take over, and in 1990, he published Piltdown, a scientific forgery. 
no one outside of Dawson and Woodward benefited more obviously from Piltdown than Arthur Keith. Already a prominent scientist with plenty of accomplishments to speak of, after he came to accept the find as authentic, it became a major factor for all of his work throughout the rest of his life. And that work got him a fellowship with the Royal Society, a knighthood, and the presidency of the Anatomical Society. Piltdown Man seemingly confirmed his hypothesis that humanity had begun in Europe and supported his view that said beginning was longer ago than the usual consensus at the time. On the other hand, Piltdown also supported the brain-first view of human evolution, which Keith did not agree with until after he became convinced of the fossil's authenticity. Which is important to note, too. Unlike Smith, Keith didn't jump on board after the initial reports. In fact, he was one of the louder and more persistent critics of Dawson and Woodward's find, up until the discovery of the tooth and the second skull. For Langham and Spencer, as well as anatomy professor Philip Tobias, who wrote an extremely dense article in support of their thesis two years later, this wasn't an issue. Keith's public hesitance to agree with the find was a smokescreen, obscuring his involvement. Not to mention that the controversy his descent created helped to publicize the no longer missing link all the more. But all of this is just salad. The real meal of the case against Arthur Keith stems from his writings, two early articles and two diary entries all about Piltdown. Let me lay this out as cleanly and briefly as I can while still preserving the integrity of Langham and Spencer's argument. On December 21st, 1912, an article was published in the British Medical Journal summarizing the famous unveiling of Piltdown Man at the Geological Society, which had occurred three days earlier, on December 18th. The article is quite long and contains a whole lot of detail about the fossils, as well as precisely how and where they were discovered. It was published anonymously, but the next day, December 22nd, Arthur Keith took credit for it in a diary entry, which began, This has been an exciting week! First, my paper on the evolution of the mammalian lunk at SK, the famous meeting of the Geological Society on 18th, crowded room. I write leader for BMJ on the meeting Monday night, 16th. On Wednesday, wrote account for Morning Post, get home at 12, dined with Reed Moore. Did you catch it in that boring litany? Arthur Keith, in his diary, says that he wrote the British Medical Journal article about the Piltdown unveiling on Monday, the 16th two days before the actual meeting. This itself wouldn't be totally inexplicable. The general shape of what the meeting would be about was announced, and although Dawson and Woodward had done their best to keep a lid on things, some rumors were still flying. But the location, makeup, and shape of the actual dig site was like a state secret, known only to a very few people. And Arthur Keith was, purportedly, not among them. So, how did he know? Well, because he was the one that put the bones there, duh. Okay, yes, I know, but wait, there is more. After that exciting week, Keith had journeyed to Sussex with his wife to see the pit, but in his diary entry, it sounds like he somehow failed to find it. Quote, 
Boys told us where Sussex Skull found. Fir Avenue leading to farm, White Gate, on Delta Plateau above the ooze. Didn't see the gravel bed anywhere. Yet, two weeks later, he published another article for The Sphere, again anonymously, in which he seemed to have made it to the site just fine. Quote again, I approached a spot marked Barkham on the ordnance map and then struck across the commons towards an avenue of firs. At the side was a ferruginous-looking cutting or excavation, simple enough in appearance but indeed the shrine for which I was making. Closer examination of the gravel showed that it was a promising-looking ground. It was strange, as one stood at the side of this little trench, to think of the interest this spot had created in scientific circles. The pit is now full of water, owing to heavy rains. Langham and Spencer's explanation for this seeming incongruity is that Keith's diary entry was a lie meant to throw off future investigators like Langham and Spencer. Arthur and his wife had walked all the way to Barkham Manor, through the mud, uphill both ways, only to turn around at the very gate they'd been seeking just a stone's throw from their objective? Nah, the diary entry was a decoy, all so that he could feign ignorance of the location of his crime. In essence, that's the case. How could Arthur Keith have known where the pit was two days before the announcement, and why did he say he couldn't find it in his diary when his article indicated he had? This isn't the whole of the argument, and we'll get back to a little more of it in a bit, but it is the main thrust, and it took John Evangelist Walsh maybe four paragraphs to totally destroy. As opposed to Miller, I can very much endorse Walsh's book, entitled Unraveling Piltdown. We'll get to his suspect soon, but first his takedown of Arthur Keith. On the second point, the fake diary entry, Walsh is particularly convincing. There is no discrepancy between Arthur Keith's diary and his article for The Sphere, only a misreading. When Langham and Spencer read, didn't see the gravel bed anywhere, they assumed Keith meant that he hadn't found the site and turned inexplicably around when he and his wife reached the gate. But a more careful reading shows that Keith said nothing of the sort. He describes the gate, he describes the surroundings, and he says, as a complete and isolated thought, didn't see the gravel bed anywhere. And in the Sphere article, he says, the pit is now full of water, owing to heavy rains. The pit is full of water, and the gravel bed is at the bottom of the pit. Both pieces of writing describe the same event. Keith got to Parkham Manor, found the pit, but couldn't see the actual gravel bed the skull had been found in because it was flooded. The BJM article is almost as easy to dispose of. Langham and Spencer can't conceive of a way that the information about the dig site could have made it into the article since Keith had written it by his own admission two days before the presentation. But we can conceive of several ways. Perhaps the SS Piltdown Man was a leakier ship than the recorded history suggests, and Keith got the info through some informed source. One such source could have easily been Arthur Smith Woodward, who met with Keith before the 16th. Or else there's another possibility. That, exactly as it says in his diary, Arthur Keith wrote the leader to the BJM article on the 16th, not the whole thing. It's pretty typical journalistic practice to complete a draft 
but leave it open to clarify or add information later. Keith could have written all 10 paragraphs on the 16th, save the slim few sentences about the location, which would have been slipped in after the presentation on December 18th and well ahead of publication on the 21st. No problemo. All right, are you ready for a fun one? Because boy oh boy do I have a fun one for you. I mean, I hope it's all fun, but I have doubts. Deep and primordial doubts. That you're bored. That you're not listening. That you hate me. Please don't hate me. Why do you hate me? Let's do the fun one! After this. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In the long line graph of interest in Piltdown Man, there are basically three large peaks. The first follows the announcement. The second comes in 1954 with the reveal that it was a hoax. And the third arrives in 1983 with the naming of a possible perpetrator, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. If the truth comported itself to the most entertaining possibility, then the creator of Sherlock Holmes would most certainly be our man. No answer could be as fantastic and thrilling, so when John Hathaway Wilson and Alfred Meyer published The Perpetrator of Piltdown in the September 1983 issue of Science, the world took notice. Technically, it wasn't the first time someone had pointed the finger at Arthur Conan Doyle. An anonymous suggestion to that effect had been made shortly after the initial exposure of the hoax in 1954. 
And it certainly wouldn't be the last time someone reached this improbable conclusion. After Wilson and Meyer lit up imaginations with their hypothesis, people interested in science, fiction, and science fiction went looking for more evidence, and quite a few thought they found some. Particularly Robert B. Anderson and Richard Milner, two scientists from the American Museum of Natural History, who expanded the case against Doyle in 1996. Milner, in particular, felt sure that Doyle was the perpetrator and made numerous high-profile media appearances explaining the hypothesis to audiences around the world. Piltdown Man, for some reason, invites people to concoct all kinds of wacky stories, but the one told around Arthur Conan Doyle, predictably, is the wackiest of all. So I'm going to try to give it to you with as little snark as I can manage, which is going to be a tall order for me. All the evidence against Doyle is circumstantial, to put it generously, but the most intriguing elements come from a real and pertinent question. Piltdown was, as we've seen, an immensely complicated hoax, even more complicated than I've so far described. Whoever perpetrated it must have had access to a lot of materials which were anything but widely available. They needed a skull, obviously, but not just a skull, because the skull excavated at the site was special. It was a few hundred years old, and it was abnormally thick, which was key to convincing everyone that it wasn't from a modern human. To find the right starting place, the hoaxer presumably must have picked through a lot of possibilities to find the one that would do the trick. The jaw, too, was special. It probably came from an orangutan, but like the skull, it was probably 500 years old or even a bit older. Not the kind of thing any Joe Schmo could pick up at the Science and Surplus store. Then there were the accoutrements, the flints, and other animal bones that littered the gravel pit along with Piltdown Man, which helped give the impression of its antiquity. These included some animals, which would be fairly easy for an Englishman to procure, some beaver teeth taken from Norfolk, but also some more exotic pieces, bones, teeth, and horns from mastodons, rhinoceroses, and hippos, many of which seem to have originated in the Mediterranean and North Africa. Once you had all that stuff, you needed the expertise to turn it into a coherent, cogent story. You needed to know which pieces to keep and which to throw away, and how to make them all appear to be the same age, very old. And obviously you needed access to the site at Barkham Manor. Preferably, you needed ready access to it, so you could return again and again over the course of years to seed further discoveries as necessary. The canine tooth, the second skull, the cricket bat. What was that? What did I just say? Forget about it. Anyway, there are a lot of factors, a lot of prerequisites, none of which are super easy to meet. And with only a relatively small amount of squinting, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle meets them all. Besides being a world-famous author, Doyle was also a medical doctor, a world traveler, and most importantly, a total fucking weirdo. In concert, these traits provide all the necessaries for him to theoretically carry out the Piltdown hoax. As a medical doctor, he had the anatomical expertise to work out the right pieces to leave, and perhaps the expertise to create the appearance of aged fossils. Maybe, nothing specific there, but why not? Before creating Sherlock Holmes, his medical practice in Southsea was inordinately focused on treating abscesses of the jaw on account of referrals from a nearby dentist friend. In a thinly veiled autobiography, he described himself as a jaw man. 
by coincidence, that medical practice was set up in a house that had previously belonged to another dentist, and when Doyle moved in, the previous occupant had left behind, you guessed it, a whole bunch of jaws. He was also well associated with plenty of famous and interesting people, including Cecil Ray, a fellow of the Royal Anthropological Society who worked as a collector in Borneo, where he and his brother found quite a few orangutan remains, which plausibly could have included a 500-year-old ape jaw that could have ended up in Doyle's possession. Again, no evidence for this whatsoever, not even a sniff, but it could have happened. Doyle also had an interest in skulls, particularly because of the bullshit pseudoscience of phrenology, and he was a friend to the leading phrenologist of the day, Jesse Fowler. Fowler was the daughter of Lorenzo Fowler, who, along with his brother Orson, sister Charlotte, and her husband Samuel Wells, founded Fowler & Wells, a prominent New York publishing company best known for collecting, cataloging, and selling huge numbers of human skulls. And just in time for the Piltdown hoax, Doyle had toured around the Mediterranean and North Africa on honeymoon with his second wife, Jean Leckie. Intriguingly, at exactly the same time, Jean and Arthur were touring Malta, a fossilized hippopotamus was found at a limestone fissure on the island. On top of all of that, Doyle regularly vacationed in Norfolk, where the beaver teeth likely originated. Doyle was also a fossil collector with an interest in human origins. He lived just a few miles from, regularly took long walks around the area of, and golfed at a course next door to the Piltdown gravel pit. He knew Dawson and Woodward before the discovery and corresponded with both of them about it, even chauffeuring Woodward around the area via his motor car. But for the Doyle theorists, the real evidence is found in his book, written at the same time as the Piltdown excavation and published just months before Dawson and Woodward's announcement of the find. The Lost World. You ready to get cuckoo bananas? Yeah, you are! The Lost World tells the story of Professor Edward Challenger, who, along with a motley crew of Englishmen, discovers a plateau high above the Amazon rainforest where dinosaurs and cavemen still walk the earth. Those cavemen, wrote Winslow and Meyer, greatly resemble Piltdown Man, even though Doyle could by no legitimate means have known the specimen's description. But that is just the tip of the iceberg. Winslow and Meyer both posited that the Lost World was purposely laced with clues of Doyle's involvement, a theory that Richard Milner took even further. Among the many, many hints they note are resemblances between one of the main characters and Arthur Smith Woodward, some telling quotations, including lines like, if you are clever and you know your business, you can fake a bone as easily as you can a photograph, and a map of the lost world included in the book's pages, which, according to them, perfectly matches the area of Sussex around the Piltdown Pit. It doesn't, by the way, not at all. The Lost World map is almost a perfect oval, whereas the area around Piltdown, known as the Weld, is, like most actual geographical areas, irregular. There are, if you look at the map extremely generously, some rough correlations between sites in the book and real places in Sussex. If you overlay the two maps, Challenger's Camp, 
comes sort of close to being in the same area as Dawson's real-world house. There's a cave near the village of Levant that similarly corresponds with an area in Doyle's book called The Hiding Place, and in the same way, a geyser in the Lost World kind of lines up with a Sussex area called Wagner's Wells. Wagner's Wells isn't itself a geyser, it's a series of artificial ponds, but that's barely even worth saying. The truth is that none of the supposedly shared sites line up particularly well between the two maps, and even if they did, so what? Doyle might have used his actual surroundings, his home, as the rough basis for concocting his fictional land, but that's hardly evidence of anything. Of course, the most deflating detail about the map is that the Lost World provides no corollary for the most important part of the Sussex story, Piltdown itself, or the Gravel Pit. So, there's that. Man, I can't keep a straight face anymore. The Doyle theory makes so little sense, and all the Doyle heads and other paranoids who over the years have tried to decrypt the lost world like it's some sort of cabalic master text end up looking like Charlie Day in front of a mess of red strings on a whiteboard. There are a lot of guilt-by-association allusions to Doyle's involvement in other famous hoaxes throughout the years, like the Cottingley fairies and various so-called psychic mediums, but those arguments fall apart when you realize that Doyle wasn't the perpetrator of any of those other hoaxes, he was the victim. Eventually, I think we'll do an episode about Arthur Conan Doyle, because it's endlessly ironic that the creator of the most rational character in popular fiction was himself a hapless dupe who continuously fell for the most asinine cons the early 20th century had to offer. Even more ironic is his relationship with the magician Harry Houdini, who debunked many of those cons, enraging Doyle and ending their friendship in the most vicious of ways. But that is for another time. For now, we only have to mention that stuff because... Hypothetically, it was Doyle's belief in spiritualism that provided the motive for the Piltdown hoax. Proving that the dead can communicate with the living was an obsession of Doyle's. He probably focused more time and effort on spiritualism than he ever did on writing Sherlock Holmes, or practicing medicine, or playing golf, or any of his other pursuits. But it was, as you might, nay, should expect, an uphill climb. Doyle championed a number of psychic mediums who turned out, Kelsipries, to be shysters, including Arthur Ford, Mina Crandon, and Henry Slade. This episode is already too long. I won't be drawn into talking about them, even if Mina Crandon did have a retractable utensil she kept in her vagina. No, no, no! We're gonna keep moving. To skeptics like Houdini, the wide proliferation of frauds in the spiritualist community indicated that the whole field was hogwash, but Doyle disagreed, and disagreed loudly. Each time some high-profile psychic was exposed as a huckster, Doyle would have to make the same argument. Just because that guy, and that guy, and that guy are fakes doesn't mean they all are. Which of course is technically true, but after a couple dozen that guys, the logic begins to lose its punch. So, Doyle got a skull from his phrenologist friend, and a jaw from his old medical practice, and some beaver teeth from Norfolk and some hippo bones from Malta, stained and filed them, all to give those nasty scientists a taste of their own medicine. When people discovered that the Piltdown Man was a fake, the thinking goes, science would have to admit that one fraud doesn't undermine an entire idea, and that 
would finally validate spiritualism. Are you fucking listening to this? Do you hear how little sense this makes? Fucking let's move on. Arthur Conan Doyle my ass. Pierre Teilhard de Chardin may not be as famous as Arthur Conan Doyle, but he did turn out to be one of the most prominent Jesuits and theologians of the 20th century. He was also an important figure in paleontology, being not just one of the few persons to work on the Piltdown excavation, but also on the later discovery of Peking Man. His thinking blended paleontology with theology for a form of orthogenesis that he believed squared evolutionary theory with Catholicism. The Catholic Church adamantly disagreed and had him isolated and ostracized thoroughly over the years. And he originated the Piltdown hoax. That was and is the opinion of a lot of people at least, including the brilliant Stephen Jay Gould, who popularized the theory. Gould produced his hypothesis in 1980, within his monthly column in Natural History. It is the first theory we've yet come upon that deserves real attention, but I'm going to put his version of the Taillard charge away for a little later, because in Gould's estimation the Jesuit wasn't the leading role, but a supporting player for a different villain, whom we'll talk about soon. Luckily though, Gould was not the only person to suspect Taillard. And he wasn't the first, either. Originally, the charge was made in the immediate wake of the hoax's exposure, in 1955, by Robert Essex. Essex was a local chemistry teacher and Dawson's cousin. His 1955 article didn't mention Tillard by name, instead giving him the pseudonym Mr. X, fucking rad, but those in the know knew who he meant. Essex's argument is entirely circumstantial. He says he was around at the time of the Piltdown excavation and, at that time, suspected something was weird about the young priest. Moreover, he wrote that he believed Dawson shared his suspicions. A few years later, Francis Veer, who had originally blamed the random road worker, published a small book this time insinuating Taylor was the culprit. Again though, Veer's motives are themselves pretty suspicious, being both an ardent defender of Dawson and of creationism. Come to think of it, a disproportionate number of Taylor theorists are creationists. Others are anti-Catholics, and still others are pro-Catholics. W.R. Thompson, who named Taylor in 1968, was a secularist. On the one hand, all these different people coming from so many different angles and landing on the same guy might seem intriguing, but this can be written off because of just how universally controversial Taylor was. He was a Catholic, but also an apostate. He was an evolutionist, but believed there was a spiritual consciousness that guided that evolution. And nobody who blamed Taylor had much to back up their suspicions other than that they didn't agree with the guy on one or more of those things. Until Louis Leakey came around, at least. Leakey was yet another Brit, but in a slightly different sense than the rest of them. He was born in 1903 near Nairobi, in what was then the British-controlled East Africa Protectorate. He's best known today for organizing and personally choosing the members of a group he called the Trimates. The three famous primate researchers, Jane Goodall, Diane Fossidi, and Birute Galdikas. He also produced a lot of work supporting, if not proving, that humans had African origins. Leakey had always been interested in Piltdown, not least of which because he thought correctly that the remains were a primary reason scientists were neglecting to appreciate the out-of-Africa hypothesis. 
He never expressed a belief that the fossils were fake, but seemed irked by or at least skeptical of their authenticity. So when the truth came out, he paid acute attention to who done it. He came to believe it was Taylor, and he made no secret of this belief. Yet before he could write a book outlining his argument, he died, leaving us with only some oblique comments and winks he made in the years prior. Leakey's primary sticking point seems to have been expertise. The culprit, he figured, must have had a fairly strong understanding of chemistry in order to harden and stain the bones convincingly. Before coming to Hastings, Pierre Taylor de Chardon had taught chemistry. Not only that, but he had taught it in Egypt, where he would have had relatively easy access to the fossilized hippo and elephant teeth, just like Arthur Conan Doyle. Furthermore, it was Taylor who had discovered the canine tooth, the most conspicuous, important, and fortunately timed find in the pit. For motive, Leakey seems to have believed that the Piltdown hoax was just a practical joke. The sort of thing a young Taylor might have done for the hell of it, that then spiraled out of control. There is a certain very loose sense to this, only in that after finding the tooth, Taylor had returned to France and joined the First World War as a stretcher carrier. Thus, he wasn't around to pump the brakes on the Piltdown sensation had he meant to. Otherwise, it's not very convincing. The other big thing to put in the pro column for Taylor's guilt was that, unlike every other suspect so far named except Venus Hargraves, at least we know that Pierre Taylor de Chardon was at the gravel pit, working on the excavation. Something that can also be said about our next suspect, Charles Dawson. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. reason people believe Charles Dawson was behind the Piltdown Man hoax is simple. He was. He was. He did it. It's actually pretty obvious. And why there's been so much conjecture over the decades about Jesuit priests and random Sussex jewelers and Arthur Conan freaking Doyle is actually kind of beyond me. It makes for a fun story, sure. But when we get down to serious business, it is Dawson all the way. And basically everyone knew it, too. In their initial and subsequent reports on the forgery, Wiener, Clark, and Oakley tried to avoid driving the hammer down too hard since they didn't have explicit evidence and finding the perpetrator wasn't strictly within their purview. Still, it doesn't take an especially close reading to get between the lines, and when people refused to read between them anyway, Wiener came right out and said it. Charles Dawson did it. 
Most of the early theories that aren't about Charles Dawson are anyway. Vare, Essex, Thompson, Van Esbrook, they were all deeply interested in finding alternatives because they didn't want it to be Dawson, the proper British gentleman in high standing, the Wizard of Sussex, responsible for so many great finds and papers. But all the other theories fall apart in exactly the same ways Dawson holds together. Who had access to the pit from the beginning to end? Who got the whole business started? Who made most of the finds? Who stood to benefit from the hoax most directly? It's Dawson all the way down. Most damning of the early evidence is the mysterious Sheffield Park site, the location of the supposed second Piltdown Man skull, which apparently Dawson never revealed or explained to anyone, even Smith Woodward. Who else could possibly be responsible for that, when seemingly no one else was even aware of it? Not to mention the very telling fact that the Barkham Manor gravel pit gave up new fossils for years, up until pretty much the exact moment Dawson died. In contrast to convoluted plots to discredit this or that person, or in Arthur Conan Doyle's case, science itself, Dawson's motive is straightforward. While he was a successful solicitor, he wanted most in the world to be a respected paleontologist. He applied to the Royal Society over and over again, every year of his life, starting in 1883. In 1909, he confessed in a letter to Smith Woodward that he just wanted to discover something that would be important enough to get him known. Then, quite providentially, he did. And that find finally got him elected to the Royal Society after 30 years of trying. The arguments made against Dawson's guilt are pretty facile. Mainly, they center around the lawyer's sterling reputation. He was too honest to have committed such a crime. A lying lawyer? Impossible. God, that's a cheap joke. Just such a cheap joke. It's not even a joke. Ugh, now I get why you hate me. The better reason for doubt was offered most convincingly by another of Dawson's cousins, A.P. Chamberlain, who wrote in New Scientist in 1968 to say that Charles Dawson simply didn't have the time nor the scientific expertise to have pulled the stunt off. Unlike Doyle or Keith or Taylor or Smith or Butterfield or Solace or Hewitt or Barlow, Dawson didn't have any training in medicine or chemistry or anatomy or even, when you got right down to it, paleontology. And so, while most people who looked into Piltdown Man concluded that he was responsible, they also couldn't believe he'd worked alone. Maybe Elliot Grafton Smith had been in touch with Dawson, had put him up to it. Or maybe Solace had. Or Keith. Maybe Dawson had conspired with Abbott. Or even with Butterfield. More than one researcher put Dawson in the middle of a thicket of co-conspirators. Professor James Douglas accused Dawson of working not just with Solace, but with most of the staff of the British Museum of Natural History. The most compelling possible accomplice, though, is Pierre Taylor de Chardin. That is the arrangement Stephen Jay Gould believed correct, and I'll admit that if Dawson had helped, Taylor is probably the guy. What caught Gould's attention, in addition to all the loose stuff Leakey had pieced together, were a couple of things Taylor wrote over the years, and a very specific thing that he did not write. In 
After the hoax was revealed in 1954, one of the revealers, Oakley, struck up a correspondence about it with Taylor, and it's in those letters that Gould found what he believed to be evidence of the Jesuits' involvement. On multiple occasions, Taylor told Oakley that Dawson had taken him to the second pit, Sheffield Park, where the second skull was, um, discovered. This was attention getting on its face, since nobody else, not even Smith Woodward, appears to have been shown the site or even to have had knowledge of it. But the timing makes Tillar's claim even more conspicuous. In theory, Dawson found, or pretended to have found, the second skull in 1915. But by then, Taylor had already left England, returned to France, joined the army as a stretcher bearer, and been deployed to the front lines of World War I. By the time his service was completed, Dawson was dead. There was no conceivable window during which Taylor could have visited Sheffield Park, let alone learned of the skull fragments there from Dawson. Unless, that is to say, Dawson had placed the skull fragments in Sheffield Park two years earlier than he told Woodward, and then sat on them until 1915. Why he would have done that is hard to imagine, but even harder to imagine is why he would have shown the site to Taylor so far in advance. There was no way to guarantee that Taylor wouldn't have spilled the beans or noticed the inconsistency, unless he was in on it. The first time Taylor made this admission to Oakley, Oakley noticed and asked for clarification. If Talar were simply confused, Gould thought this was the perfect opportunity for him to get straight, but he insisted no. He had visited the second site in July of 1913, and by then the skull fragments and tooth that made up Piltdown 2 had already been found. After reading Taylor's letters to Oakley and talking to Oakley himself, Gould was on the scent and went looking for any other inconsistencies or evidence that pointed towards Taylor. And he found some, too. In another letter to Oakley, Taylor fudged when asked how long he had known Dawson, putting their introduction two years later than the actual, in a way that seems Taylor made to obscure his possible involvement in Dawson's scheme. In the same letter, Taylor also goes to great pains to emphasize to Oakley that at the time he met Dawson, he was very young, not knowledgeable in paleontology, and strictly confined by the Jesuits at Hastings in his comings and goings. While there's no question that Taylor was young, letters from the time indicate he was no spring chicken, and he seemed to have a fair amount of latitude to do as he pleased around Sussex. To Gould, all of these little details and flubs added up to a pattern of Taylor obfuscating his true ability and opportunity to have cooperated with Dawson, but for the most part, they feel like reaches. Of course, Taylor looked back at his youth and thought himself naive. Who doesn't? Anyone who doesn't, I don't want to talk to. Sure, he may have technically been able to wander around at times, but that's no great contradiction to the feeling of being constrained by the church. As for when he met Dawson... While that did happen two years earlier than his recollection, there's every good reason for that recollection to be faulty. Their initial meeting was no great shakes, and anyway, it happened 40 years before his explanation to Oakley. Good luck recalling any similar event in your own life that precisely from such a distance. But that central point where Taylor claimed to have seen the second sight and known about the second skull years before Dawson told Woodward about it is a serious issue. And I will admit, I was thrown until I read John Evangelist Walsh's explanation. 
What Walsh pointed out is something that escaped the notice of nearly every other Piltdown detective of the last 70 years. There wasn't just a second site at Sheffield Park. There was also a third. In 1913, just before when Taylor puts his tour, Dawson wrote to Woodward to inform him of what was then a second site near the town of Barkham Mills, which, as luck would have it, was approximately the same distance from the initial discovery as Sheffield Park. He informed Woodward that at Barkham Mills he had found more skull fragments. Not of another Piltdown man, but of an early human. This find basically disappeared from the recorded history until 1949, and even after that, it went mostly overlooked. We don't really know what Dawson pulled from it, or if he actually pulled anything, and we don't know why he never made hay of Barco Mills, or why Woodward never wrote anything about it. But it seems astoundingly likely that this was where Dawson took Taylor, who, decades later, had conflated the forgotten discovery of several skull fragments with the very much unforgotten discovery of several other skull fragments at Sheffield Park. Just like that, one of what Gould calls his two main pillars collapses. The other has a similarly simple explanation, even if it too appears pretty curious at first blush. Throughout his life, Pierre Taylor de Chardin wrote a lot about paleontology, evolution, and human origins. Like, a lot. He also wrote voluminously about his own life's work and experiences. Piltdown Man was a key piece of evidence that sat at the intersection of all of his interests, and he had played a direct role in its discovery. He was one of just four people who could claim to have taken a major part in the excavation and he had personally found the tooth that settled the biggest question of the find. Yet, in his whole career, he barely ever mentioned Piltdown Man. Not to tell the story of its discovery, not to put it in what was considered its proper place in evolutionary history, he largely just ignored its existence altogether. When he was forced to write about it, he confined Piltdown Man to grumbling footnotes, and when the hoax was revealed, aside from his letters to Oakley, he patently refused to comment. At one point, an exhibit was put up in London, while Taylor was still there, examining the history of the fraud, and eventually Taylor was compelled to visit it by Oakley. He described Taylor as sullen and impatient, breezing through the exhibit as fast as possible, barely looking at it. His assistant told Oakley that Piltdown was a sore subject with the priest. To Gould and others, this all looks like evidence that Taylor felt guilty about his involvement in the scheme. But Taylor's stands, and there are a lot of them, point out an explanation at least as likely as that, that he had suspected something was off about Piltdown much earlier than the 1954 unmasking. There is some text to support this interpretation. Vague comments made that suggest he was skeptical of the jaw that he expected some veiled truth to eventually be revealed, that he felt betrayed and wronged by Dawson, a man he had considered an honest friend, whom he was unwilling to expose, but unable to openly support. Frankly, this explanation just scans better, and it gels with the two main arguments made by Walsh and some of the others who believe Dawson was the sole perpetrator, 
There's no good evidence for anyone else, including Taylor, once you slot the Barcombe Mill site into the picture. To bring in a second party, let alone a third or a fourth, requires that you square Dawson's clear motive with some much hazier secondary one. Because no one else was interested in making sure Charles Dawson got famous. So why would anyone help him? Who would have that interest? Not to mention, of course, that old sawhorse, two men may keep a secret as long as one of them is dead. Dawson wouldn't have anticipated that, in a Piltdown conspiracy, he would be the one to croak. Why would he risk bringing someone else in on his plot when that person could at any moment expose him or blackmail him with the possibility of exposure? The only possible answer is the issue so many of his defenders point to, that he didn't have the skills or knowledge to pull it off himself. That he needed someone like Taylor or Keith or Abbott to get the hoax right. Those guys had knowledge that could have made them adroit fakers. Was there any evidence that Dawson was? Oh my, yes. It has been a while, so let me quickly remind you that before the Piltdown discovery, Charles Dawson had a long and illustrious career finding artifacts and writing books about Hastings' history. He'd written the definitive history of Hastings Castle. He'd discovered an ancient boat, a Paleolithic stone axe, an iron statuette, some Roman bricks that dated to the last days of the empire in Britain, and the so-called toad in the hole, a fossilized toad entombed in a flint stone. For all these finds and more, he was called the Wizard of Sussex and earned an esteemed if minor place in English paleontology. But after the exposure of the Piltdown hoax, people started going back and looking into Dawson's other work. All of it, it turned out, was phony. He'd made some actual finds early on when he was working with his mentor, Samuel Beckles, including the dinosaur, which was named for him, Iguanodon Dawsoni. But after Beckles died in 1890, Dawson seems to have turned almost immediately to fakery. Even his history of Hastings Castle was a counterfeit. He'd plagiarized most of it, aside from the stuff about secret tunnels and a subterranean dungeon, which did not exist. The most damning early fake was the first thing Dawson had brought to Arthur Smith Woodward, the fossilized tooth of the earliest mammal ever found in Europe. It had been shaped, hardened, and stained via the exact same process as Piltdown Man. So like, case closed, right? I mean, I feel a little bad for pretending there was some suspense for so long, but what was I gonna do? Not talk about an Arthur Conan Doyle conspiracy theory? While there are still folks out there who are unconvinced that Dawson did it, or that he did it alone, to my eye the evidence is pretty overwhelming, and it only continues to accumulate. In 2016, a team of scientists led by Isabel de Groot and Linus Gerdland Flink took a detailed look at every bit of Dawson's over and concluded all of it had the same forensic fingerprint. Each and every piece had been created by the same single person, Charles Dawson. It's a slam dunk, and I'm generally of a mind to agree with Walsh, DeGroote, Flink, and a bunch of others, a special shout out to Miles Russell, that Dawson was a lone wolf. Except there is one more suspect and one more confounding element that I find hard to dismiss. 
1978, Andy Current and Bob Knowles were going through a loft above the zoology wing of the Natural History Museum when they came across a trunk, which had previously been owned by Martin Alistair Campbell Hinton, who'd been the keeper of the department through 1945. Among a hodgepodge of Hinton's specimens and experiments, there were a bunch of fossils. Fake fossils, mostly teeth, that had been shaped, hardened, and stained in seemingly the precise same way as Piltdown Man. Which is pretty difficult to overlook, right? Mac Hinton was a renowned fossil expert with exactly the sort of pedigree necessary to create the Piltdown remains. Add to that, he was a notorious weirdo and prankster known to carry around a taxidermied beaver beneath his overcoat to scare people with. And he supposedly had a grudge against Arthur Smith Woodward, and he wrote several times in support of Piltdown's skeptics. Could it be that, in spite of all appearances to the contrary, Martin Hinton was the real hoodwinker all along, and all the evidence against Dawson just an unfortunate, improbable coincidence? Well, no. I mean, the problem with the case against Hinton is the timing. He didn't have access to the site when he'd have had to, and his supposed grudge with Woodward, if it even existed at all, wouldn't have begun until after the first pieces of skull were discovered. Still, the teeth found in his trunk represent the most compelling and direct physical evidence of the hoax. So, what are we to make of that? There are three possibilities. The first and least plausible is yet another conspiracy that Hinton employed a third party, maybe Taylor, maybe Venus Hargraves, to plant the bones for him. Why, how, and when he might have done this is difficult to say, so those who suspect Hinton usually just don't. The second, and admittedly most likely possibility is that Hinton suspected the fraud from the jump and that he constructed his fake teeth later in an attempt to work out whether and how the Piltdown specimens could have been created. The third theory is the most fun, and I'm hesitant to attach a level of confidence to it because I honestly just don't know, but it is at least plausible. So follow me for just a few more minutes here because this one is a hoot. Up until now, I have been keeping something from you. I have repeatedly said that the pieces which constitute the Piltdown hoax were ingeniously chosen to weave a careful and well-constructed narrative about its pseudo-history. That is largely true. Each fragment of skull, each tooth, the missing pieces of the jaw, the associated animal bones and teeth, even the primitive flints and tools, all of them were meticulously curated to create the most plausible and convincing version of the missing link. All except for one. Among the very last finds pulled out of the Piltdown site was a large chunk of fossilized elephant bone, which appeared to have been shaped into some sort of tool by the hominid who died there. But it wasn't clear what it could have been used for. It wasn't a knife or a spearhead or a whetstone or such. 
it wasn't like any tool found in any other Paleolithic site anywhere else in the world. The only thing it could be likened to was much more modern. Very much more modern. It looked to be a cricket bat. Yes, you heard me, a cricket bat, found alongside the remains of what was being called the earliest Englishman. It really does have the appearance of a joke, a fairly funny one, even. And unlike every other thing pulled out of that gravel pit, it seems like you, if you were the one putting it there, could have fairly expected that when it was found, people would say, oh, come on now, that's too much. Yet, they didn't. Instead, the cricket bat was either explained away as a yet unknown tool or else glossed over entirely, and the hoax continued apace. In addition to the sheer ostentatious jokery of the cricket bat, there are two other things that set it apart from the rest of the site. It was found, supposedly, just lying on the surface, near the pit, nestled into some shrubbery. And it was, ironically, carved from an actual fossil. Stained like the Piltdown bits, but not modern. So the theory goes, and again, I don't want to press the likelihood here, but it sure seems possible. Charles Dawson, already decades into an uninterrupted career of forgery, undertook his greatest plot yet, the creation, planting, and discovery of the missing link, which nearly everyone fell for, hook, line, and sinker, but not Martin Hinton. He was onto the scam early and hard, yet he was young, virtually unknown, without the esteem or stability necessary to challenge renowned figures like Dawson and Smith Woodward. He was also a prankster, and so he had what looked like a path to get his message out. After toying with the creation of some smaller Piltdown lookalikes, which ended up in a chest above his office, he crafted what seemed to be the perfect foil, a phony so outrageous that it would reveal the plot and make for a good joke to boot. And when everyone just took his shitpost seriously, he gave up. He maintained his skepticism for Piltdown Man throughout his life, but only ever out loud and informally, making off-the-cuff comments to friends and colleagues at parties and the like. Why would he risk his reputation trying to debunk it further? After all, Piltdown's supporters had already shown themselves willing to believe anything. Even a cricket bat. I don't know. Could be. But now we've reached the end of the possible plots and suspects. We can say that Dawson is guilty almost as confidently as if we had photos of him in the act. Probably, he acted alone, with a maybe around Hinton and the cricket bat. There is, however, one last person we haven't talked about. We've talked about so many that you can certainly be forgiven if you haven't noticed. The guy who stood to gain arguably the most from Piltdown Man, who got a knighthood out of the deal, for Christ's sake, and the esteemed professional who laundered most of Dawson's phony finds through to the scientific establishment. What about Arthur Smith Woodward? In the 70 years of Dan Browning the Piltdown hoax into the ground, it is suspicious just how few people found Woodward's involvement suspicious. 
Surely if Dawson had an accomplice, it would make more sense for it to be his established and known, well, accomplice, than to cast the blame on random jewelers and Jesuits, right? And it's pretty gross and obvious that, to some degree, Woodward managed to avoid suspicion just because he was such a reputedly honest man of science, the height of British society, which is a terrible reason to write him off. But there is a better one. Charles Dawson died in August of 1916 of pernicious anemia. Arthur Smith Woodward lamented the death of his friend and collaborator, defended his good name, and the Piltdown Man for the rest of his life, which came to its end in 1944, when he was 80 years old. After Dawson passed, nothing more of value was ever found in the gravel pit at Barkham Manor. But that wasn't for lack of trying. And if Woodward was in on the scam, he truly dedicated himself to covering it up. Because he wasted every summer for the rest of his life back in Sussex, digging and sifting nearly 30 years, trying to find what he didn't know couldn't possibly be there. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound. If you want to support the show, there's an easy way to do it right now that you might remember from the top. Go to surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave, answer a few questions about yourself and the constant, and get entered to win a $500 Amazon gift card. You can also, as always, head on over to patreon.com slash the constant to sign up to be a sponsor of this show. For your trouble, you will get early and ad-free access to new episodes, as well as monthly bonus content and the smug satisfaction of knowing that you're better than everyone else. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where I've only barely managed to get my voice back long enough to record this outro, so I'm going to shut up now. This has been The Constant. today for organizing and personally choosing the members of a group he called the Trimates, the three famous primate researchers, Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, and, oh, I can never remember how to pronounce your name. I'm so sorry. Everybody always forgets about you, and it's, it's not fair, because you did really great work. He's best known today for organizing and personally choosing the members of a group he called the Trimates the three famous primate researchers, Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, and Brut... Brut Galdikas. Brute Galdikas? I already lost it. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me?